Well, this morning, we have the joy, privilege of being able to worship in a beautiful space. Uh, it was interesting as you guys were coming in, uh, I was able to uh, watch your reaction uh, as Miss Kimberly uh, takes the children, we'll go ahead and dismiss our children at this time, uh, to kids' church. Uh, was able to watch the reactions as folks came in. You, you could see them kind of scrambling, okay, where do we sit? Go, well, I, I've, I've got to be close to the restroom. Well, I, I've got to be next to a door because if I've got to run out with my kids, uh, I want to make sure that I've got easy access. And, and then folks are saying, you know, well, I usually sit on this side of the sanctuary, but let me go. the And, and so it, it was interesting. And then just watching, uh, watching the ushers as they were trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? You know, it, it's, there's, there's a learning curve, and, and we, have, uh, we have the joy this morning to be able to worship a risen Savior. You know, something that, that I was thinking about whenever we were uh, worshiping this morning is that right now, all across the globe, in grass huts, in open-air pavilions, in giant cathedrals, in gymnasiums and sanctuaries all over the world, there are people gathering, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus all over the world, today, right now. And we were talking this morning as a staff, we have a wonderful opportunity to to redo the space But the purpose for redoing the space is not so that we have a nicer church, not so that we have new chairs and new carpet. It's not so that that it looks better or it's more comfortable for us or it's cleaner or it's nicer or it's more modern. The purpose is so that we can more effectively reach our community, so that we can more effectively reach the lost around us. And if that means, if that means that we change the carpet, then we change the carpet. If that means that we knock out walls, we knock out walls. If that means that we go to the neighborhoods around us, we go to the neighborhoods around us. God has called us not to to keep an aquarium, but he's called us to fish for men. In church, we have a wonderful opportunity to fish for men. So let us remember as we renovate our sanctuary, as we remodel, that the purpose is not to have a nicer space. Because Jesus shows up in grass huts. He shows up in open air pavilions. He shows up in rented firehouses and in in gymnasiums. Our purpose is to reach the lost. If you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 16. This is going to take some getting used to. Uh, I've got a lot of stage to walk on. Uh, and so if, if, if I ignore you over here, I'll, I'll get back to you. If I'm, if I'm over here, I'll get back to you. This is going to take some getting used to for me. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pacer. I'm a walker. Uh, so so uh, if, if I'm walking too much, my wife will tell me on the ride home, okay, you got you to plant somewhere and you got to stay still because you're driving me crazy. Uh, so, uh, so just bear with me as I learn the new stage, uh, learn how, to, how, how this all works. So... Uh, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. Uh, If you notice, there's no screen. So uh, there are these things that are printed, called a Bible, 
and many of you may actually have one. Uh, and if you bring them to church, you can use them. Uh, and typically, the passages that I preach out of are in the same spot in your Bibles. Uh, we've also put some Bibles under the pew, or under the pews, under the chairs in front of you. That's going to take some getting used to. Under the chairs in front of you, uh, if, there, if there aren't any Bibles near you, you can raise your hand and somebody will throw you one uh, from across the sanctuary. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 16 this morning, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and we're going, to, uh, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, testing him, and asked to show them a sign and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red in the morning. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, it is because we took no bread. But Jesus answered, aware of this, and said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand and remember the five loaves? The five loaves of the many the five loaves of the five thousand, how many baskets you took up, or the seven loaves of the four thousand, how many baskets you took up? How is it then that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say beware, he did not say to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we open your word here this morning that you may speak to our hearts, that you may encourage us, that you may challenge us from your word. Lord, that we may not be blinded to the work of God around us, that we may not be blinded to what you are doing, but that we may see the works of God and we may actively participate in what you're doing in your church, both locally and in your church abroad. Lord, may you use us this morning for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want us to notice as we begin this morning, I want us to notice the setting that Jesus begins to speak from. Jesus is speaking this passage on the heels of feeding the 4,000, on the heels of healing the lame, on the heels of healing the blind, on the heels of opening the mouths of the dumb, on the heels of feeding the 5,000, on the heels of walking on water, and the Pharisees and Sadducees come up to him and they say, show us a sign. And I'm sure Jesus is sitting there thinking, really? Where have you been? Where have you been? Have you not noticed what has just taken place? But before we jump into the text, I want us to notice what Matthew does here in chapter 16. Matthew begins, and Matthew is the only gospel writer that puts the Pharisees and the Sadducees together here. Many of the other gospel writers will talk about the scribes and the Pharisees or the religious leaders as a whole, but Matthew talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees together. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees were two political groups within Israel. They were two political groups within Jerusalem that were at complete odds with one another. These were not buddies. This is the, the equivalent of the Democrats and the Republicans. This is the equivalent of, of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. They didn't like each other. They didn't get along. This is not, this is not buddies who, who, who spent their whole time together and they said, you know, we, we really have to figure out what to do about this Jesus guy because he's threatening us. No, they hated each other. Let me point out just a, just a few key differences for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There was this, this ruling government, this ruling aristocracy in the nation of Israel in Jerusalem at the time called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was, all of the people, all of the, all of the people in authority, all of the power, and the majority of the Sanhedrin was made up by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were people who were very, very rich, who were very, very powerful, and who were in the hip pocket of Rome. They were, they were sympathetic to Rome because with Rome comes power, with power comes influence, and, and the very wealthy wanted power and they wanted influence. Not only were the Sanhedrin very powerful, not only were the Sanhedrin very wealthy, not only were the Sanhedrin in the, in the hip pocket of Rome, the Sanhedrin adamantly, vehemently opposed the theology and the doctrine of the Pharisees in this. The, San, the, the Sadducees only believed that the authority of God was communicated through his written word. Specifically, the Pentateuch. Specifically, the first five books of the Old Testament. Specifically, the law of Moses. And so anything else, any additional law that the Pharisees... Remember, we looked at the Pharisees when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount and all of the, the additional oral teachings and all the additional... The additional uh, information and, and additions to the law that the Pharisee says, this is the law of God. This is equated to the law of God. The Sadducee says, you're adding stuff to the law. This is not what Moses said. This is not what God said. And you're wrong. You're just wrong. And so the Sadducees disagreed with the Pharisees on a multitude of things. The, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead at all. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. At all. The Sadducees had tremendous opposition within the Pharisees. But they needed the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, the upper middle class. The, the Pharisees were, for the lack of better term, they were, they were the, the business class of Israel. They were the wealthy. They weren't the super wealthy, the, the top 1%, but they were the top 10%. They were very wealthy. They were very educated, but they were, they had the ear of the masses. They had the people because the Pharisees were often those who taught in the synagogues. The Pharisees were often those who were in the marketplace debating. The Pharisees were often those who were working, working in and around the synagogues and communicating the word of God to the people, communicating uh, the law of God to the people. And so the Pharisees were part of, they were much more part of the people. They, were, they opposed Rome. They saw Rome as the enemy, whereas the Sadducees saw Rome as, as an ally. And so of the Sanhedrin, of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees made up a very small part, but the Pharisees, the Pharisees had a controlling interest because they controlled the people. 
And so here we have all throughout, all throughout the, the 400 years of silence between the last of the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees are at odds with each other. They hate each other. And enter Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene. And the Sadducees could care less about Jesus until he begins to attract attention from Rome. And whenever Rome begins to notice that there's this guy in Jerusalem who is stirring up trouble, then the Sadducees said, okay, if they're going to attract attention from Rome and they're going to challenge our partnership and challenge our influence and challenge our our relationship with Rome, then, then we have to do whatever we have to do to stop it because we cannot lose our power, we cannot lose our influence, we cannot lose our money. And so the Sadducees said we have to do something. We've heard the statement, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's exactly what we have here. The Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other, but what they hated more than anything else was the fact that their way of life, their position, their influence was about to be challenged. Their status quo was about to be changed. And so that's the setting that we have. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. They ask this question. They say, give us a sign. Now, we've already mentioned this. What has just taken place? I mean, verses before in chapter 16, if you look at at, at verses 32 through 38, 39, Jesus has just taken seven loaves of bread and he has just multiplied it to feed thousands and thousands of people. Immediately before that, in Matthew chapter 15, in verses 29 through 31, it says that departing from there, Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee. And verse 30, And great multitudes came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, those who were crippled, those who were blind, those who were dumb, and many others. And they laid them down at the feet of Jesus, and he healed them. Show us a sign. How about if I heal somebody who's blind? Is that a sign? Show us a sign. How about if I open the mouth of the dumb? Show us a sign. How about if I heal the lame? Show us a sign. How about if I feed the thousands? And if that wasn't enough, if you go back to the previous verses, if you go back to verse 14, if you go back to verse 14, Jesus has just fed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus has just walked on water. Earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus has demonstrated signs and wonders. But here we have the religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees representing the religious elite. And the religious elite are blinded to the signs of God's movement because they are so consumed with their own religion, they are so consumed with their own their own ideology, their own keeping of the law, their own rules and regulations that they are failed to see that God is working all around them. I believe that in the church today, especially in the Western church, that we are so blinded by our own religion, by our own rules and our own set of expectations that we are blinded to the move of God all around us. Church, it's possible. It's possible that 
The Holy Spirit can show up at a baseball field. It's possible that the Holy Spirit can show up in the parking lot of a supermarket. Yet we have this idea that that in order for Jesus to work in our lives, in order for, for our co-workers to come to know Jesus, it has to happen inside the walls of the church. That I can't communicate my faith, that, that, that the Holy Spirit can't get a hold of someone unless they come to church. And at that, unless they come to a Baptist church. Because Lord knows Jesus can't work at a Catholic church. Lord knows he can't show up at a Presbyterian church. It's only Baptist. We're the only ones who got it figured out. I think Baptists are going to be real surprised when we get to heaven. There's all kind of other folks there. <laughs> How'd you get here? <laughs> the reality is, is that the grace of God is demonstrated and is real and is working in the lives, in the lives of people all around us. Some of the most godly men that I've ever met in my entire life have callous hands. Breath smells like cigarette smoke. Yet they love Jesus and they love people. Some of those godly men, some of the most giving, loving, caring people that I've ever met in my entire life have been burnt by the church. And so you know what? I love Jesus. I love people. But the meanest people I've ever been around in my entire life are associated with the church. Why? Because we are Sadducees and Pharisees. We argue over stuff that doesn't matter. We argue over, not saying this is the case, we argue over the color of the carpet, paint on the walls. We argue over whether we have Bible study at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning or 6 p.m. on a Monday afternoon. We're blinded by our religion, our traditions, that we're incapable of seeing God working all around us. Jesus challenged the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and listen to what he said. He said, the common sailor can discern the future by looking at the sky. And you are incapable of seeing the work of God all around you? And you are the religious elite? You are the teacher of the law? Jesus says something very similar to Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him and said, and said, I recognize that, that you're a teacher of the law. I recognize that, that you come from God, for no man can do the things that you've done unless God has sent him. And then Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And then Nicodemus says, how can I be born a second time? How can I enter into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus looks at him and said, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand what I'm saying to you? Not be born a second time, but be born above, be born again. Be born of spirit and of water. Jesus said, as a teacher of the law, you ought to get this. And we see that same sentiment here as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying, 
As, as the religious elite, you ought to get this. I just walked on water. I just fed the 5,000. I just fed the 4,000. This guy was blind. Now he sees. This guy was lame. Now he walks. This guy was dumb. Now he speaks. And you ask me for a sign? Are you kidding me? I feel like we do the same thing, church. We come to church and we say, God, I want you to move in my life. We walk out the door and we say, God's not, he's nowhere around. Open your eyes. Reading a book, best book that I've ever written about Christianity called The Insanity of God. If you haven't read it, read it. If you've read it, read it again. Amazing book. Missionary in Africa, travels all over the world to study missionaries and churches who have been persecuted and who have been been under the, the crucible of persecution their entire lives to figure out what's the key. And as he's, as he's meeting with, with pastor and deacons and, and church members who've been thrown in prison because of their faith and, and who've been, been, their families have been killed and they've been exiled. And, and he asks them, he says, why don't you write some of these stories down to encourage the, the body of believers around the world? And one of these pastors in China, after he tells him his story, he says, why haven't you written this down? <laughs> the pastor looked at him, he said, why? He said, so it'll encourage the church. He said, when did you stop reading your New Testament? When did you stop reading the Word of God? He's already written this down. We already have the testimony of of Paul and Peter and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and John and Matthew and Mark and all of those who've gone before us. When did we stop reading our New Testament? When did we not stop when did we stop believing that God still works like that? It's the same God. The scripture tells us in the in the in the New Testament that God is the same yesterday, today and forever. He doesn't change. The same God who spoke the world into existence, the same God who was with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the same God who was with David as he slew Goliath, the same God that was with Paul and Silas in the prison of Philippi, the same God who was with the disciples, who was with John whenever he was boiled alive, the same God who was with the church is with us today. Amen? Amen. And that same God can heal cancer. And that same God can, can move in the lives of your children and grandchildren. And that same God can do miraculous things. Why? Because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When did we stop believing that? The religious elite are blinded to the things of God. We don't see God working all around us. We don't see how... I got laid off. I had to move. I had to put my kids in this school. My wife had to get this job. I lost my job because I was in an accident. My wife had to go to school. And God works all things according to His purpose and His glory so that Jesus might be glorified. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still. It says, God is our refuge and strength, verse 1. Very present help in time of trouble. Though the mountains fall into the depths of the sea, though the, the oceans roar and foam, be still. Stop. Look around. Know that He is God. 
the religious elite are blinded because of their own religion. And then, just in case we think that, well, he's talking about the bad guys, Sadducees, the Pharisees. Surely the disciples are better. Let's look at the text. The disciples represent the faithful followers of Jesus. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began saying to themselves, is he saying that because we forgot our lunch? Is he saying that because we forgot bread? You, you, you can see, and we've all been there. We, we, we've all had that moment where you walk into your boss's office and he says something and, and you think, oh no, did I forget to, 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 to prepare for this presentation? Was I supposed to, was I supposed to bring something to this meeting and, and there's a cold sweat that breaks out over you or, or, you know, you, you walk into, uh, you know, you walk into, uh, a dinner party, you walk over to your friend's house and they say something, you're like, oh my gosh, was I supposed to, to bring something? Did I forget? And there's that moment there that the disciples have. Jesus makes a statement. He says, don't listen to what the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying. And they say, oh my gosh, did, did, did we forget to bring bread? What, what, what's going on? And, and they, they just lose their mind. They just, have, they just have a stupid attack. And the disciples notice The disciples are blinded by their own humanity. They're blinded by their human nature. They're blinded by their own sin. Not that it was sin for them to forget bread, but their humanity, their human nature. They were blinded by their own sin. Our sin, our humanity, often prohibits us from seeing God at work. Something happens in our life and our own humanity, our own logic and rationale, our own self-preservation, our own humanity gets in our way of seeing God work. God works in our lives and God is providential and God is sovereign. And I want us to get that, that God is sovereign, that there is not a leaf that falls off a tree and hits the ground without the foreordination of God. Hear that, church. God, whether directly or indirectly, works together all things. God is sovereign. Why was Nebuchadnezzar the ruler of Babylon? Because God put him there. Why was Xerxes, Artaxerxes, the ruler of Persia during the book of Esther? Because God put him there. Why did the Assyrians take over the northern kingdoms? Because God allowed them to, because God caused them to. Scripture says very clearly that, that he told Israel, if you do not obey me, if you do not sur- if you do not surrender your will, if you do not hold to the covenant of God, that I will send your enemies and they will destroy you. And God did just that. The Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. Yet God is faithful. You realize that Israel is the only nation in the history of the world ever to experience exile and yet remain a people? Why? Because God's sovereign. Because God desired through the nation of Israel to bring about a Savior. And that means 
that even if they're exiled, God's going to accomplish His will. God's sovereign. That means that even when things happen in your life that you don't understand, even when there's death of a loved one, even whenever there's the loss of a job, even whenever there's pain, hardship, trial, difficulty, affliction, that God is sovereign. And in our humanity, we try and fix our lives and never stop and step back and say, God, you're God. How can you bring about your glory through this situation? Our sin and our humanity often prevents us from seeing God at work. It is only after we repent of our sin, it's only after we seek God that we're able to see how He's been working all along. How many of you have come through a situation and then you've looked back and you say, wow, you know, even five, six years ago, I see how God was working in my life. I see how God was working through the death of my husband. I see how God was working through the loss of that job, or God was working through that transfer, or God was working through that, that illness, or God was working through whatever that affliction is to bring about glory for Him now. And maybe... You can't see that because you're in the middle of it right now. The scripture says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. We don't have to know the end. We don't have to know the end because we know the author of the end. We don't have to know the conclusion because we know the author of the conclusion. Paul said this, go to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Paul acknowledged this. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. From the tribe of Benjamin. He was discipled under Gamaliel. And he says this in Galatians chapter 1 verse 13. Paul understood that God was working all things out according to his plan before Paul even knew what was going on. Galatians chapter 1, verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. But when he... He being God, when he had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Paul acknowledged, I want you to see this in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15. When he had set him apart, when? From my mother's womb. Paul understood that God had called me to be a preacher of the gospel, that God had called me to be a missionary to the Gentiles from my mother's womb, yet my Phariseeism, my religious training, was all part of God's plan. Where did Paul go every time he went into a city? Where did he start? The synagogue. Why? Because he was trained as a Pharisee. He had a platform in the synagogue. Where 
Paul, not trained as a Pharisee, he would not have that platform. Paul understood that while God had set me apart from my mother's womb to be a missionary to the Gentiles, everything that I had gone through in my life was God working in such a way that he may use me now. God is working in your life through circumstances that you don't even understand so that he may use you for his glory. He's sending you to the school. He's put you in the marriage. He's put you in the family. He's put circumstances around you, and he's working. And we're blinded by our own humanity. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I'm not talking about bread, morons. Jesus doesn't say morons. That was was my, my... color commentary but he says he says seriously i just made like 10 million loaves of bread out of seven you think bread's the issue i mean you 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 can hear jesus talking to the disciples saying seriously guys bread really no it's the teaching of the pharisees and the sadducees don't be blinded Don't be blinded by your humanity and by your sin. The Pharisees were blinded to the identity of Jesus. The disciples, in a large part, were blinded to the identity and the purpose of Jesus. The challenge for us, church, is to not be blinded to who Jesus was and what He intends to do in your life and in the lives of those around you. After Pentecost, the disciples are no longer blinded. The Holy Spirit comes and moves in and amongst them. Their eyes are opened. They're able to see. And when they see, notice what they say. Philippians chapter 1, 21. For me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. Nothing else in this world matters. So here's the question I have I want to end with. Are we, are you, so earthly minded that you are of no heavenly good? We've heard the statement, while I disagree with the statement, that you're so heavenly minded that you are of no earthly good. I can't think of anyone who was more heavenly minded than the Lord Jesus himself. There was never a person who walked the face of the earth that was more earthly good than Jesus. So here's the question I want to pose to us. Are we blinded by our religion? Are we blinded by our humanity? Are we so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly good? Romans chapter 9, verse 27 says, It appointed for a man to die once and to face the judgment. The scripture tells us that this world and everything in it will be destroyed. All of the trappings in this world, this stage, this carpet, these chairs, these walls, this building, one day is going to perish. But there are three things that are going to remain forever. God, the word of God, and the souls of men. Are we so earthly minded that we are of no heavenly good? Or are we investing our time, energy, and efforts into things that will last? Are we teaching our children the Word of God? 
Are we pouring into the souls of men? Are we sharing our faith with our coworkers, our loved ones? You say, preacher, I can't do that. Invite them to church, I'll tell them about Jesus. You don't have to. Just love them. Invite them to church. Let me tell them about Jesus. Are you so earthly minded that you're of no heavenly good? Let us not be blinded by our religion. Let us not be blinded by our humanity and sin. And let us be so heavenly minded that God uses us for his glory.